William Shakespeare starts one of his sonnets with that sort of famous uh, question, um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And then he goes on to, to talk about someone and you don't know who it is. It's presumably some um, fair youth like the first 17 sonnets have been. That's sonnet 18. Um, we use comparisons all the time. It, it's, you know, the sonnet goes on to sort of describe this is how you are better even, oh, fair youth, than a summer's day because, you know, you're more, you're around longer or you're, you know, whatever. There's all these sort of comparisons. We use comparisons like that all the time to help us understand and to kind of um, get clarity on on things we don't Get. I mean, things that on face value, you're like, I don't understand what that means. And someone says, well, it's like, and then they go on to sort of give you a comparison. And you're like, okay, that I can do. I have no idea what you said the first time, but that I can do. Um, that's essentially what God does in this chapter. Because if you notice, there's this series of comparisons that are designed to sort of give us a, a clearer picture of a better understanding of Israel's standing before God, of, of God's standing and, and love for Israel, and yet the pain and agony at her rebellion. And so perhaps like Shakespeare, Hosea could have started this with, to what shall I compare thee? Because you notice there's an oven, there's a cake, there's a dove, it's a series of comparisons that God gives to Israel. First, I want you to see, though, that God exposes sin. It seems that the Israelites are thinking some of the same kinds of things that we tend to think. They, they seem to be holding on to this notion that if if I do something in secret and my parents don't know about it or my spouse doesn't know about it or my kids don't know about it or my boss or my co-workers don't know about it, then in all likelihood, God doesn't know about it. Now, we know better, right? I mean, some of you are already laughing like, yeah, that's silly. I know it's silly, but we do it. We do have this sort of notion that I can, I can sin, I can rebel, I can violate God's revealed will in some way that He won't Know it, but notice how this chapter begins in verse two, for example, they don't consider that I remember their evil deeds, their deeds surround them there before my face. Israel seems to think that they can they can hide their guilt and shame. Even from God himself, it's like they haven't read Right, the highest heights, the deepest depths, the, the bottom of the abyss, the darkest dark, the brightest bright. God sees in all of it. God's there in all of it. And so their sins are exposed. Their guilt is exposed. You know, at some level, there's a, there's a, a mindset out there. You know, you have to be careful with the out there. You don't really know who you mean, right? But I mean outside of these walls because surely we wouldn't think of things like this, right? This we'll, we'll blame other people rather than than blaming ourselves. But there's you know there's there's this mindset out there sometimes that that the reality is God doesn't 
God doesn't really care all that much about our sin. You know, there's this notion that, well, I mean, he understands. I'm trying hard. I'm doing my best. I mean well. Um, and, and, or that, that he accepts us and loves us in such a way that, that w- there's no reason for change. There's, there's no guilt. You know, I'm not even really sure that's a sin anymore kind of a thing. We bring this notion that we wonder if God really actually is aware of sin at all. Like, is, does he really care? Is it really that big a deal? Sometimes we think he won't know. Sometimes we think he doesn't really care. We may not say it. We know better than to say it, but we live like it. We act like it. You know, the reality is, as horrible as it is when we think we've been found out, you know, oh, they've, they've, they've found out. That's like the worst language we could possibly use about our sin, right? Oh, so-and-so found out. My sin's been discovered. It's been revealed. My parents have found it. My kids have found it. My spouse, whatever. Whatever the sin thing was, I was trying to keep quiet has been exposed. You know that's God's grace to you, right? You know that's actually God's grace to you. It's far worse to keep it hidden. It's far worse for it to remain a secret. It's far worse for it to be, well, like Sir Walter Scott, right? Oh, what tangled webs. We went to English class today. Oh, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's not Shakespeare. That's Sir Walter Scott. You get all tangled up because the lie I told that is really the original sin, now I have to figure out how to tell all the right lies to cover up the first lie, which I've kind of forgotten, so I'm not really sure if I'm able to keep that tangled web straight in my head. And so we get ulcers and depression. We feel isolated. We feel alone. And our guilt and our shame weigh heavy on our shoulders. And somehow we think it's better if our sin is kept secret. But the reality is we are far better off with our sin actually being exposed because then we can deal with it. Then we can repent. Then we can turn to Christ. Then we can gather brothers and sisters around us who will love us and care us, care for us and restore us and point us to Jesus and take us to the cross and say, Jesus died for that. He's not going to judge you. So I'm not going to judge you. Let's set up barriers and boundaries. Let's do what we can to aim for your holiness. And so their sin is exposed and it's actually exposed in God's graciousness. It's his grace to us. That sin gets revealed. And then the sins themselves are played out in this series of comparisons. So God exposes our sin. Second, God exposes the rebelliousness of sin. Hosea uses the image versus Three to seven of a an oven. Ovens were made of clay, kind of big, wide clay, kind of like a big green egg, 
I'm always going to work the bigger end. Or a, um, or a chimney, a kind of, you know, they got a hole at the bottom and a chimney at the top and the flames, the heat and the stuff could, could rise through that. And typically the baker um, would actually start the fire at night and get it going and then kind of damp it down so that the, the, the um, embers would just kind of smolder through the night so that the clay would be hot the next morning. So when he needed to kind of refire the heat, the fire, the oven's already warm. It's already hot. But here it actually paints a picture of, of internal, hidden, rebellious sin. It's internal, hidden heat that's allowed to grow while no one's looking, while nobody's paying attention. You've seen movies, you've read books. Of those people who get to serve at court with the British monarchs. They think they are somebody. They have power and influence and authority. They have the king's ear. They, um, you know, whatever. But the whole time you're watching the movie. And, and as, you know, somebody is talking to the king. You will visually, verbally even react don't listen to him. He's in cahoots with the bad guy. Right? You know how, how people at court will suddenly find themselves with the kind of power and influence and authority that they actually have the king's ear all the while they're plotting his overthrow. Saying all the things the king wants to hear while at the same time leaving the king's presence to go to another room and lay out a plan for his murder. That's kind of the image in verses 3 through 7. Princes are joining in the celebration at the king's table. These people in positions of, of power and influence. And in Israel, this could have been Political people, it could have been even the priests themselves involved in all of this. They benefit from their relationship to the king. All the while they're plotting his death. And you can go read 2 Kings 15 and watch as ruler after ruler takes the throne in Israel by virtue of killing the current king. Only to then die within a couple of years. Because someone else has come along and killed him and taken his throne away. What started as flattery grew kind of like an unwatched fire in the oven into full on treason. We see the rebelliousness of sin. Israel's been guilty, and, and you see this language of, of, of they're all adulterers, and that's been the theme throughout the book of Hosea. Not just Gomer's own personal adultery, but that was always intended as a, a picture for the nation of Israel. They are adulterers. They're guilty of spiritual adultery. They have worshipped Baal instead of Yahweh. They've served other gods instead of the one true God. But that's not their only guilt. Here, they're actually worshiping the God of, of power and influence. 
It's the fact that they now have some power, they have influence, they have authority over the people that they seek their own pleasure, their own passion, their own preferences, their own praise rather than the good of the people they serve. Israel looks to political leaders and and influence influencers and the elite to give her her value in the world. And in fact, verse 7, not a single one of them calls on the Lord. They're looking to anything and everything except their God. See, here's the thing. The church doesn't need political leaders to defend her existence. The church doesn't depend on who's in what office where. Governor, mayor, president. None of that matters. The church doesn't depend on the political world to defend her. And she certainly doesn't need to fall into the same kinds of power-hungry pursuits that are so prevalent in the political world. There's a picture here that maybe we as Christians need to to lay off the idea that somehow our elected official is our savior. God exposes our sin. God exposes the rebelliousness of sin. God exposes third, the negligence of sin. We see it in verse four and then verses seven through ten. You know, I'm I don't look. My family makes fun of me. I wake up early. I can't help it. I always have. I was boring in college and I'm still boring and it's fine. I'm okay with that. But I can't imagine the life of a baker. Like I can't fathom the notion of being at work at four o'clock in the morning. So that the bread is baked fresh for the people that come through between six and seven and eight to get your fresh loaf, your fresh baguette, your fresh croissant, whatever it is you're there for. The, the picture here is of a baker who is supposed to be working. He's not. The picture in verse 4, for example, the baker sleeps in. Like a heated oven whose baker stirs the fire and then kind of lets it go. And then the next thing you know, it's burning out of control, which is really not what's supposed to be happening. Verse six. See, in the morning, it blazes like a faint flaming fire. The the baker decided to sleep in. He decided not to go to work that day. He decided not to to do the things he was supposed to do. And actually, the baker is an illustration of the king himself who's doing the exact same thing. He's neglecting his responsibilities, which allows the rebelliousness of the princes to fester. This baker king is called to lead God's people. He should have been modeling a a dependence on God and his promises and on God's faithfulness. To his promises and yet he's not. Instead he's distracted from that duty of leading God's people. Of modeling godliness. He's distracted by his own pleasure. His own 
desires, his own praise. He's holding parties, he's drinking, he's getting drunk, he's doing all of these things rather than the thing he is supposed to be doing. Which really is a a warning for leaders and especially leaders in the church, quite honestly. We should be building up the good of those under our care more than our own pleasure and praise. And so there's a negligence in leadership. And then in verse 8, you get another comparison, a a cake that didn't get flipped over. And so it's only half-baked, a cake not turned. The the baker's negligent in protecting God's people. And so you notice what happens, verses 9 and 10. Foreigners come and take Israel's stuff. So not only is the, the baker king not leading God's people, but he's not protecting them as well. The responsibility of leaders in the church is the holiness of those under their care. That's why we have a thing such as called church membership. I mean, there's a a picture there that church membership is supposed to reflect membership in the kingdom, but it also reflects a willingness to submit to the leaders of that local congregation You're saying to that congregation and to those leaders, I want you to care for my holiness and I want to care for yours. In fact, we have this this image throughout Scripture. I mean, every every example, every image that the Bible uses for the church is something that requires other people. Right? It's a body. Many parts, different functions. It's a building. One brick. One brick. Does not a building make? Um, it's a it's a family. It's a household. And so there's this this picture then that we all need each other. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, it's the elders that have the keys of the kingdom. They turn the keys to admit, to unlock and lock the door, to let in and to let out, if you will. And so the. The point is that the leaders of God's people should care for the holiness of those under their care. But these leaders in Hosea 7 have actually mixed politically and and religiously and culturally with the nations around them. Verse 8. The church is called to purity. The leaders of of God's people are called to protect them from the influences and the the thoughts, the ideas of the nations around us, if you will. And these leaders have neglected that duty. It requires attention. It requires focus. It requires giving time and energy and thought to all of it at the weirdest of hours, much like this baker. So there's a picture here then that when church leaders fail to protect their people, they're negligent in their duties. In fact, just look at the imagery in in verse nine. There's strangers come and devour their stuff. They're taking their stuff. And no one seems to care. No one seems to protect them. Their gray hairs are sprinkled upon them. Here's the thing. Everywhere in the Bible, gray hair is an honor. Everywhere in the Bible, gray hair represents wisdom 
and the experience that is supposed to be celebrated by the people, not shuffled off into some sort of hidden corner of our world. That's not the case here. I don't think this is gray hair, gray hair. This is moldy bread, gray hair. You know, you leave bread in the pantry too long and you go in and you discover there's this gray, fuzzy stuff growing on it. That's the kind of gray hair that's being described here. It's, it's because there's been lack of attention, because there's been no care, because there's, there's, there's lack of use and, and lack of care for God's people, this Baker King fails to love and to serve them well. He's negligent in his duty to care for the people. God exposes the rebelliousness of sin and the negligence of sin. God also exposes the foolishness of sin. Did you notice verse 11? There's a a dove. Like a, a homing pigeon. But if you read verses 11 and 12, it sounds a little more like Ron Weasley's Uh, owl in Harry Potter than an actual homing pigeon. Seems to have trouble figuring out exactly where he's trying to go. Can't quite stick the landing. You know, misses here and there. A little inconsistent in his approach. There's this picture of Israel desperate for help. And so where do God's people go when they need help? Well, naturally, we go to Assyria. Or to Egypt. That's the picture. Israel has, has turned her. Well, when, when Assyria became a threat, Egypt was their help. When Syria was a threat, Assyria was their help. When the nations started to knock on Israel's door, Israel said, well, I'm going to need the help of the nations around me. It's not enough to trust in God and his care for his people. And I need to seek the wisdom and counsel and advice and help of the world around me. And they literally turn their attention to anyone and everyone, every sort of would-be aid, except for the one to whom they should have turned. You know, we, we look down on people who live foolishly. I mean, we have this sort of built-in radar for... That's just that's just foolish. What that person is doing, the things that person is saying, the way that person is trying to live their life. We have this sort of innate. Now, we may not say it out loud, but it's in your head. That's just foolish. And we look down on them. We we kind of mock them for it. We kind of laugh and point and 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 mock them for living Foolishly. And then the church says, wait, hold on, we need help. And she turns to the world around her for her help. I, I get it. You know, there's this, this idea that you know, we, we don't want to look so different that we look weird. We, want, we don't want to look so different that we look unattractive. We don't want to look... So different that they just simply point and laugh. But the reality is, you know, roll their eyes at us and sort of make fun of us, call us old fashioned and out of touch. All the things that the church so easily gets. 
But here's the thing. If you can't tell the difference between the church and the government building or Rotary or Bridge Club or the tennis, you know, your, your tennis club, whatever, then what's the point? If the church isn't different, then what's the point? What's the value? What's the benefit? You know the sort of saying, right? He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. But the reality is, if we're too earthly minded, we can't be any spiritual or heavenly good to those around us. And so God's people should be calling on God for their defense. God's people should be turning to him for their leadership and protection and for their care. We shouldn't be seeking the approval of the nations around us. We should be seeking the help from the God of the nations. So there's this folly of sin, this foolishness of sin when the church depends on political leaders or seeks the approval of those outside the church, particular interest groups or whatever, either inside or outside the church. She's calling on the wrong sources. She's like a, verse 11, silly, senseless dove. And the reality is the world laughs and points and mocks when God's people sin so grievously and publicly. God exposes the rebelliousness of, of the rebelliousness of sin, the negligence of sin and the foolishness of sin. And finally, God reveals the solution for sin. You would sort of expect. By the time you got to the end of verse 11 or 12, you would expect somewhere to be a big giant hammer, um, a zap of lightning out of a fingertip. You would expect, you know, one big sweep of the hand and Israel annihilated. And instead, what you get, verses 13 to 16, is a lament. You get sorrow. You get. You get frustration, yes. Disappointment. Will God, you sort of get to verse 12, will God respond in judgment or in mercy? Because the reality is, He is both. He's not one or the other. He is both just and merciful. And so one of the problems that's seen, verse 17 is that people are telling lies about who God is. They're, they're describing Him. Okay, he's, God's really okay with our sort of mixed ideas. Yes, we take our ideas from the Bible, but also from our leaders, our political leaders, the world around us. We kind of mix it all up. Uh, like verse 8, stir it up in a pot, and God's okay with that. He doesn't mind that we're seeking help from the world around us rather than from him. He doesn't mind our syncretism. He's okay with all of that. That's the, the lies that we're being told about God in within the nation of Israel. We do the same thing, right? Maybe not we in this room, but but we do the same sort of thing today. We we just is you know we'll say God is love. He is love. It, the Bible tells us as much. But what we mean is that he's not just. Or what we mean is he lets you do you. And that's okay with him. 
And he doesn't need, you don't need to change. You don't need to do anything different. Right? I mean, when we say we, that God is love, we mean that he's only love and he's not anything else. He's sort of like a soft, cuddly Santa granddad in the sky that just hugs us and embraces us and gives us money and thinks we're great and wonderful just like we are. But if that's the case, why the word redeem in verse 13? The word redeem suggests something's got to change, right? Or verse 14, they don't cry for me from the heart. They wail on their beds. That suggests a difference between anger at him, sorrow for how he's treating us or what he's doing to us versus the beginning of verse 14, sorrow for what I've done and what I've done to you. Redemption and repentance. Redemption, verse 13, repentance in verse 14. That suggests that he needs to redeem us. He needs to buy us back. He needs to somehow solve our sin issue to restore the relationship. And what we need is to repent, is to to hate and forsake our sin. Not because it makes life difficult. But because it pains him. For the pain it causes God. And so there's this picture then that the solution for sin is redemption. By God's grace, trusting in the Messiah that he has sent to pay for all our sins. How do we do that? Well, verse 14, we cry from our hearts. We cry out out of pain and agony and hatred of our sin and our rebelliousness, our foolishness. And we repent, we hate and forsake it, we turn in faith to Christ. And the reality is, the meal set before us is designed just for that. The meal is set, this table set before us is not for people who are perfect. People who are perfect don't need a sacrifice. It's also not for people who don't want it, who who aren't trusting in Christ for their salvation because you, you don't want him to be your sacrifice. But this table is designed to strengthen our faith, to draw us to Jesus, to hate and forsake our sin and to return to him. It's a picture of that redemption accomplished by God's grace for rebellious, foolish, sinful people like us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your patience, even in the way we read in Hosea, the, the time you give for repentance, the delay between their sin, their, uh, their rebellion and your, um, your judgment is merely a picture of your long-suffering. And Father, we thank you that you are patient with us, that you've sacrificed your Son to redeem us, and would you, um, would you strengthen our faith and trust in Him? Would you grow in us a hatred for our sins so that we would cry from our hearts sorrow for our guilt, our shame, for the pain that we've caused you, but also with gratitude that there is forgiveness found in him.
And we pray that you would make us people who take that message everywhere we go. Through Christ we pray. Amen.